to the Word of God this morning. I thank you guys for your patience and allowing me to to preach for for three weeks, and you you actually keep coming back. Uh, I know I have um, I have um, delivered quite a bit of information in um, in a short period of time, and my goal is not to to keep you long this morning. Well, this has been Black History Month, as you well know, and several weeks ago, Pastor Mike asked me to do uh, some messages around black history. And as I told you in the very first message that I gave, that I felt the Lord told me to, to focus more broadly, not just on the traditional stuff that we do around Black History Month, but to really broaden the scope and to talk about the continent of Africa in redemptive history. And what I mean by that, as I said to you earlier, is that Africa, Africa has played a strategic role in God's unfolding plan of redemption. It was a part and parcel of God's plan to use the continent of Africa in order to fulfill his redemptive plan of ultimately bringing the Lord Jesus into the world to save mankind. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how God has used the continent of Africa and in particular northern Africa in the country of Egypt and how God unfolded his plan, how God began to unfold the promise that he made to Abraham when he called Abraham out of the earth of Chaldees and brought Abraham to Palestine and then from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob and how Joseph uh, uh, Jacob's son was sent down to Egypt into slavery. And, and as a result of that, Joseph rose to prominence and power in Egypt and how Joseph married an African woman and had two sons by the name of Ephraim and Manasseh. And as I said last week, Ephraim and Manasseh became part of the, the nation of Israel. And when Joshua went into the promised land, when they divided up the land of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh got parceled out land in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the land of Palestine. And so they became part of the 12 tribes of Israel, these biracial young men that we will call them today. A, 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 the, the son of an Egyptian, the sons of an African woman, a part of the nation of Israel. And we talked about how Jacob went down into Egypt because of a famine and, and the rest of his family and, and over 70 people ended up in Egypt at the same time. And God used Egypt as the cradle. He used Egypt as the cradle to, to nurture and to give birth to this nation that he was going to use to pour into, to pour out the covenants that he gave to, to Moses, the law that he gave to Moses, and he gave to them all the commandments, and, and, and God gave them the, the blueprint to build the tabernacle. It's this nation that God nurtured and gave birth in the land of Egypt in North Africa. And as we saw last week, the 70 people that originally went down into North Africa all died in North Africa. The whole generation died in North Africa. And the Bible says that during that time, a new Pharaoh rose to power. Now I'm reviewing now. And as a result of that, 
He began to oppress the nation of Israel. But by this time, they had been they began to uh, uh, give birth to a lot of children. And so the, the nation of Israel began to grow and to develop as a nation. And then during this time, Moses was born. Moses was born during this time when this Pharaoh had passed an edict that all the boys, all the male children were to be thrown into the Nile River because he wanted to control their population. And as I stated last time, if you want to destroy a people, if you want to control a people, you get rid of the men, you get rid of the boys. There's nothing new under the sun. Every nation that tries to control another nation, they first of all get rid of the men. It is no accident what is happening with our young African-American men today. It's never been an accident. It's always been strategic. And it's more than just dealing with the white man. This is a spiritual issue. This is a demonic issue that Satan desires to destroy the lives of young black boys. It's incumbent upon us to stand in the gap, to begin to seek the face of the Lord and to pray. And last week we also talked about how Moses married a, a Cushite woman. And we just spent a lot of time talking about how the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, were nurtured in the land of North Africa. Now, I want you to think about this. When they went into North Africa, they went with 70 people. But when they left, they left with 600,000 men. Where do you think all of that growth came from? It certainly didn't come from just that 70 people. There were whole, there was a whole lot of intermingling and intermarrying with the native people in North Africa. In order to produce that many people, and they were there at Deacon Curry over 400 years. So in many respects, the, the nation that left, the nation of Israel that left Egypt during the Passover were more African than they were anything. Because they were there for over 400 years. It's just like now, you go to Africa, Africans will tell us, you ain't African. Because you think like Americans. So we have been shaped by this nation. We are Americans at our core. We've been shaped by the cultural values of this nation. The way we think. It's been shaped by the fact that we live in America. It's all we've ever known. That nation that left North Africa during the Exodus, all they knew was North Africa. Which is why when you get into the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God is trying to now reconstitute them. He's trying to... to to renew their minds now because they're still thinking like Egyptians. Which is why when Moses led them out and they began to complain and say, you brought us out into this desert to die. It was far better when we were back in Egypt. When we were eating watermelon, <laughs> onions and leeks. And Pastor Mike said fried chicken. It was far better. And so the land of Egypt and North Africa nurtured the nation of Israel 
they left North Africa during the Exodus. So their whole way of thinking, their whole way of life was shaped by the North African continent. That wasn't by accident. That was a part of God's plan. God is the one that sent Joseph to Egypt. God is the one who sent Jacob to Egypt. God is the one that caused Moses to be born in Egypt. God is the one that caused all of the patriarchs to die in Egypt. Because God had made a promise to Abraham. God told Abraham that your descendants will be in a land not their own for 400 years. And at the end, I will come rescue them and I will judge that nation. So this whole deal about being in North Africa was all God's doing. Now, if I had time, Sister Carmen, I would tell you about Solomon and Solomon's love affair with black women. But I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't, I, don't, I don't have time to tell you about Solomon and his love affair with black women. And, and Sister Kim, if I had time, if I had time, Sister Kim, I'd walk you over to Jeremiah chapter 38 and I'd introduce you to a man named Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech was a Cushite. And as I told you before, Cushite is the same word for Ethiopian. Ebed-Melech was a servant of King Zedekiah. And he's found in chapter 38 of the book of Jeremiah. Ebed-Melech was an intercessor on behalf of Jeremiah. Because you know, Jeremiah was this guy who would preach against the wickedness of Judah. And everybody hated Jeremiah. They despised Jeremiah because of his preaching. And as a result of Jeremiah's preaching, Jeremiah got thrown in a cistern or what you might call, he got thrown in a water hole, just like Joseph got thrown in a water hole. But it was Ebed-Melech who went and interceded with King Zedekiah. They said, we got to get Jeremiah out of this hole because if he doesn't, he's going to die in that hole. And Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, went and got rags, just like black folk, <laughs> make do. Took some rags, Pastor Mike, and lowered those rags down into that hole and yelled down to Jeremiah and said, grab those ropes. And he pulled the prophet Jeremiah out of that hole, saving his life. But, but I don't have time. To tell you about Ebed-Melech, the Cushite. But I do have time to tell you, Aaron, about Jesus. I, I do have time this morning to tell you about Simon of Cyrene. And I do have time this morning to tell you about the Cushite, who's also called the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And I also have time this morning to tell you about 
the African church fathers. And so with that, you ready, Aaron? Let me tell you about Jesus goes to Egypt. You know the story. In the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it reads, When they had gone, now the they that's being referred to here are the Magi. This is when the wise men had come from the east to see the Christ child. And they had visited Herod. And when they had went and visited Jesus, they went back another way. They didn't want to go see uh, Herod. So, so when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to who? Come on, talk to me. In a what? Appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he says, get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to where? Where is Egypt? What part of Africa? North Africa. So, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for where? I, I can't hear you. Where is Egypt? Where he stayed until the death of Herod. Now, scholars don't know exactly how long it was between the time that the angel spoke to Joseph and Mary to tell them to escape to Egypt because he who seeks the child's life is still going down to Egypt. They don't know how long it was, but they surmise that it was between a few months and at least a couple of years. And so Jesus, as a child, goes down to Egypt and stayed there until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet he's talking about here is the prophet Hosea. And the text says that out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in is when Hosea first gave that text, He was referring to the nation of Israel because Israel was always referred to as God's son. But when Jesus, when Matthew wrote his gospel, the Holy Spirit whispered in his ear and told him that that text has double meaning. And ultimately, that text refers to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. Jesus goes down to Egypt. And why does he go? He goes down to Egypt so that Egypt will serve as a safe haven for the Christ child. You're going down to Egypt so you can be protected so that Herod will not be able to find you. Now, do you do know that God could have sent Jesus anywhere? He could have gone north. Could have gone northeast and northwest, but instead God says, I want you to go down to Egypt, Avery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus, the Christ child, went down to Africa where his life was preserved. And you see God using the continent of Africa again, Reverend Will, in order to preserve and to nurture the nation of Israel and to fulfill his prophetic promise. You got to understand this. God is not going to allow his plan to be thwarted by anybody. And he used this African nation as a strategic partner 
in fulfilling and carrying out his plan. Now, let's talk about. Uh, well, it's one more text, one more text in Matthew chapter two. I'm sorry. And, and after the after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph where? While he's still in Egypt. And he tells him, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. So Abraham went to Egypt. Jacob, Joseph. Moses was born there. And throughout the Old Testament, what you'll find is that every time Israel got in trouble, Aaron, she always made political alliances with Egypt. Every single time. And God would have to tell them, stop going to Egypt. Look to me. When Solomon became the king, God told him, don't go down to Egypt to get all them horses. Read your Bible. Don't go down to Egypt and get all those horses. But Solomon didn't listen. He went down and got some horses and he got some women. But throughout the Bible, you see the nation of Israel constantly going down to Egypt. Now, now let's move on. Let's talk about Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, Luke chapter 23, verse 6. And it reads, as the soldiers led him away. You know who the him is? Who is it? Jesus. What's the scene? What's happening here? He's on his way to his crucifixion. Jesus is on his way to his crucifixion. They seize Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country And put the cross on him and made him carry it behind him. Now, just so you'll know a little geography here. This is Cyrene. Right here. This is Egypt. This is the Sahara Desert. This is all North Africa. This is where Simon of Cyrene was from. He was from North Africa. And here he is. Now, you may wonder, because people were going back and forth between Africa and, and, and Israel. It was just a constant interaction between the two. So now here this man, Jesus. Jesus has been whipped. He's been whipped by the Romans. Forty, almost 39 lashes. He's been beaten with a cat of nine tails to almost to, to, to the end on the, the edge of his life. He's been ripped to shreds. They place a crown of thorns on him. He's been up all night. He's thirsty. He's tired. He's weak. And they have this cross beam on his back. And he has to get to Golgotha's hill. You need to understand this. Jesus could not die anywhere else. Because the prophetic word was was hanging over this, Avery. Jesus had to die on Golgotha's hill. But Jesus, because he had lost so much blood, was weakened from his beating. And he fell to the ground. He could no longer carry the weight and the load of that cross. 
And what does God do? It's no accident. This is all part of God's providential plan that Simon of Cyrene, the African, is there. And the crossbeam of Jesus is placed on his back. And he carries Jesus' crossbeam all the way to Calvary. Because Jesus had to get to Calvary. Jesus had to die on Golgotha's hill. He could not die on the way. He had to die on that hill. Simon of Cyrene from North Africa carried the weight of the cross. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is a white man's religion. Don't let anybody tell you that. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is Johnny come lately to the continent of Africa. Uh Uh-uh. In God's due time, God took the gospel to Europe. But make no mistake about it. The gospel and the presence of God was already in Africa before it ever went to Europe. Let's talk about this Ethiopian You can Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I think year, maybe was it, was it a year ago you taught this? You talked about the Ethiopian eunuch? We're going to look back at the Ethiopian eunuch. I think it's Acts. And you believe it or not, Sister Carmen, I'm almost done. Mm. Acts chapter 8, look at verse, look at verse 26. You have it, say amen. Now an angel of the Lord, I'm reading out of the NIV. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. An angel of the Lord said to Philip. Don't miss that. Go south to the road, the road, I'm sorry, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian, better translated, he met a Cushite. He met a Cushite eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace. Now, now Pastor Mike, like you, because I know you taught this before, I was always under the impression that Candace was the personal name of the queen. But I found out that that's not true. That the word Candace is really Kandak. K-A-N-D, Kandak. K-N-D-A-C-K. And it is a title for the Nubian queens that ruled south of the Nile. Just like the the word Pharaoh isn't a personal name, it is the title of the rulers of Egypt, much in the same way as Herod is not a personal name. Herod is the title of the rulers of the Romans. So Candace or Condence is the title of the black Nubian queens that ruled south of Egypt in the area that's called Cush or called Ethiopia. And so the, the text says, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot doing what? 
hold on, before you go to what he was reading, what was he doing? What was he doing? Y'all, y'all didn't see that. What was he doing? Who was doing it? A who? A black man was doing what? Reading. Oh, glory. A black man reading. Good God Almighty. Black man reading. And, and what was he reading? And what is Isaiah? I know he was a prophet, but what is the book of Isaiah? It's, it's what? It's scripture. A black man reading scripture. How about that? He was sitting on the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked this question, do you understand what you're reading? Now, now notice he didn't get offended. He didn't get offended when the question was posed, do you understand what you're reading? Because sometimes when you don't understand, it takes some humility to admit, I don't get this. And, and, and this is particular to the brothers. Because sometimes we don't like to admit we don't understand. And so we shy away, particularly from the word of God, because we don't want anybody to know that we don't understand. But this brother didn't get offended when the question was posed to him, do you understand what you are reading? And, and, and he goes on to say, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, in the Bible, the one who does the explaining, Paul says, is a preacher. See, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. He's talking about a preacher now. It don't always have to be a preacher, but you need somebody to explain. You need a teacher, somebody to help you understand the word of God. I got where I am today because I had people help me understand. Y'all ain't that smart. Some of you may think I am, but I'm not. I sat under a lot of people. I sat under folks, teach me. So get rid of your pride and ask somebody to help you understand the word of God. I ain't fussing. Uh, where did I leave off, Sister Carmen? A uh, third one. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life has taken from the earth. The unit asked, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Now watch what Philip does. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him about the what? I can't hear the what? The what? What do we just sing about? The good news about Jesus Christ. And I can imagine the Ethiopian eunuch was saying, ain't it that good news? Because it was a Negro spiritual, wasn't it? Ain't it that good news? (laughs) 
As they traveled along the road, verse 36, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Because baptism is a testimony to the world of a spiritual reality that has taken place in your life. And you're saying now I'm fully going to identify with the one that I have placed my faith in. And so the eunuch says, what hinders me to be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and Philip baptized him. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him. But watch this. But he went away what? He went away what? He went away joy rejoicing, just singing on that chair. Ain't that good news? Now, I want you to look at this. I've got a couple of points for you about this Ethiopian eunuch. First of all, he was a man of power and prestige. He was a man of power. He, he worked in the court of the queen. So he was a man of power. He was a man of prestige. Secondly, he was a worshiper of Yahweh. The text said that he was in Jerusalem worshiping. Now, you got to understand, he traveled from down in, in Nubia, which again, which was south of Egypt. And it would have required him to catch some kind of boat or some type of navigational uh, of, uh, uh, mechanism or uh, to, 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 to navigate the Nile all the way up the Nile River and then get on a chariot and drive up to Palestine to worship. It did not take a couple of days. It was several days to do this. But what else does it say about him? It also says that he was wealthy. And how do we know he was wealthy? He was wealthy because he was riding, number one, in a chariot. People, average Joes or average people did not have chariots. Only wealthy people had chariots. And you're looking at a black man, an African, riding in a chariot. Way back then, it's kind of like riding in a uh, modern day uh, luxury vehicle. It's called wealth. The second way, Sister Carmen, we know he was wealthy, it was because he was reading a scroll. Scrolls, Brother Emmanuel, were very expensive. The average person did not own scrolls. Scrolls was written on parchment or animal skins, and it was very, very expensive to own them, to have them. So the fact that he actually had a scroll of the book of Isaiah is highly significant, and it speaks to his wealth. But that's not all, Aaron. Second to the last point says that he was highly literate, and at least he was bilingual. He was able to not only speak his native Kushite language, but he also at least had to be able to speak Greek. Because the text that he was reading in the book of Isaiah was from the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So here's a black man sitting in a chariot, reading scripture, bilingual, literate, learned man. 
And then the last point, which eclipsed all of it, is he became a follower of Jesus. And he went home and he told everybody else about Jesus. If you study the history of the Ethiopian Coptic church, they can trace their history all the way back to him. All the way back to him. So the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrated Africa long before white missionaries stepped foot on the continent. See, this this history just kind of gets obscured and nobody hears about it. And so as a result of that, then 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 groups can 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 rush in. And poison the minds of young brothers and sisters and convince them somehow that Christianity is a, 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 is a, is a white man's religion that we did not get exposed to the gospel until they brought African slaves from, from, from the west coast of Africa and brought them to America. And that's when we got exposed to the gospel or when white missionaries went to Africa. Not true. Not true. Africa has had a long history. First of all, a long history that began with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph that predates Christianity by some 6,000 years. Are y'all all right? I'm almost done. Let's talk a little bit about the African church fathers for a quick second. Now, when I talk, what I mean by church fathers, I'm talking about those key theologians that were instrumental in the development of Christian doctrine. Because after the, all the apostles died and, and left, uh, they had disciples that were responsible for, for carrying on uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And on the continent of Africa, there were four men who were very instrumental in the development of doctrines that we believe today. They were instrumental in shaping doctrine as we know it today. Now, let me back up just a bit because I want to show you this. The four men that I'm going to talk briefly about all come from North Africa. They all come from here. You got, now let me go back to this slide and we'll be almost done. Hold on, you can't see that yet. (laughs) First man at the top, his name is Tertullian. Say that with me, Tertullian. He was born in Carthage, present day Tunisia. How many ever heard of the term the Trinity? The doctrine of the Trinity. Tertullian. He's the one who, he's the man who coined the term Trinitas. It's Latin. Because all these guys wrote and spoke Latin. 
They're called the African Latin Fathers because by this time the Romans had colonized North Africa and because of that they imposed their language on that land just like the Greeks did when Alexander the Great conquered lands, he took Koine Greek. So when the Romans came, the language of the Romans was Latin, which is why in the Roman Catholic Church before Vatican II, all masses, all mass were done in Latin. How my Catholics can, can testify. I'm about to get right there in the back. They testify. All of, all you go to a Catholic mass, it was all done in Latin because that is the language of the Romans. Now, Tertullian is responsible. This black man from, 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 from Carthage, he's responsible for the term of the Trinity to describe the Godhead. He's the one that articulated that. A black man, African. The second man on the list, his name is Origen. Say that. Origen. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt. For those of you who don't know, Alexandria, Egypt, had the greatest library in antiquity. It was the hub where all the great philosophers and learned men went to do scholarship. It was in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, the city was named after Alexander the Great because he conquered it before the Romans and he named it after himself. But that library was burned to the ground years later. But it was the most strategic intellectual center in the ancient world. And it was in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, Origen, Origen is responsible also for the development of the Trinity. He contributed to the development of the Trinitarian doctrine, teaching that the Son and the Spirit were distinguished from the Father and yet existed eternally with the Father. So, here's a black man, an African, thinking very deeply about theological issues in the development of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. We would not have it were it not for Origen and Tertullian. Third man. Athanasius. Say that. Athanasius. Athanasius is described as a very dark-skinned man, short of stature, having a crooked nose and a reddish beard. He was called affectionately the Black Dwarf. Athanasius was known for his unrelenting convictions, especially his, his convictions that the eternal Son of God became human. He famously penned in his most influential work on the Incarnation. Um, Athanasius fought against heresy. That is a, a heresy that is believed by the Jehovah's Witnesses today that believe that Jesus 
is not co-equal with the father. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being. So when you read the New World's translation of their Bible, in, in John chapter 1, in our Bibles it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, in the, in the New World's translation it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. The Jehovah's Witnesses are doing nothing more than regurgitating a heresy that began during the time of Athanasius that Athanasius fought against. And the man who was the uh, the originator of this heresy was a man named Arius. Athanasius fought against him because he said that is a false doctrine. And he worked vigorously to affirm the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ and the incarnation. There is a creed that has this name. It's called the Athanasius Creed. And then finally, the, the fourth and final person on the list is Augustine. Augustine was born in Hippo. He's arguably the most influential of the North African church fathers. He single-handedly, and I want you to hear this, he single-handedly shaped the entire Western Christian tradition throughout the Middle Ages. Reformers like John Calvin, Martin Luther, trace all of their theology back to St. Augustine. John Calvin has stated that all of his doctrine he got from Augustine. John Calvin wasn't a theologian. John Calvin was a lawyer. He wasn't trained in theology like Martin Luther was. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. How many of you ever heard of the doctrine of predestination? The doctrine of election? You can thank Augustine for that. But today, most folks don't hear this. This is where the reformers got it. They got it from this African. Now, last week, and I'm going to be done. Last week when, um, when we were done, I was talking to harvesters. And one harvester was chatting with me and they said, and the question they asked me was this, Craig. And I quote, do white people know this and the person that asked the question she asked it in, as a it was almost rhetorical because they knew but it was just just kind of eating away like do white people know this do they understand this well my answer was yes and i just want to show you a couple of examples here do white people know this yes there's 
white brothers and sisters who know the truth and they are writing about it. This book here is an academic book, um, hardback. It's called Christianity in Roman Africa. And it goes into great detail talking about those church fathers that I just mentioned. These two books right here, this book guy by Thomas Oden. And Pastor Mike, you'll like this because he was a Methodist. You got to like the Methodist. That's, a, that's Pastor Mike of the home uh, with the Methodist. This book right here, the African memory of Mark, because uh, people believe that Mark took the gospel also down into Africa. Thomas C. Odin also wrote this book, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. We unpacks the impact of Africa on Christian theology and how Africa shaped it. And then this book by this dear sister, A History of Christianity in Africa. If you want to get those, it'll be worth your read. I've, I don't have all of them. I have this one this one. Uh, I don't have these two yet, um, but I got those. I got other books, but this just kind of give you a sense of Africa in redemptive history. And I know this has been maybe been more lecture oriented, more academic oriented, but I hope it's been all right. It's been all right. I spent some time on, um, and I'm going to end with this because uh, I think it's real pertinent. I was in, I was in New York this weekend um, doing what I do with my work. Uh, I, I train and do workshops. And there was a young African-American brother came up to me at the end of one of the workshops. He said, are you familiar with uh, Hebrew Israelites? I said, yeah, pretty much. And he said, can you, can you give me some insight how we, and he's talking about churches, and life, how we can counteract that? Because what I'm seeing, he's in New York, where, where, where it's on and popping. Like you wouldn't believe. So how do we counteract this? How do we turn this narrative? Because I'm seeing so many brothers going over into Hebrew-Israelitism. They got to know this. Because what those guys do and others like them, other nationalistic groups do, is that they exploit people's ignorance. They exploit what we don't know, and there's a real felt need. There's a real felt need the young brothers were no different than I was when I became a Christian. I wanted to know where did I fit in God's redemptive plan? Did God have anything to say to the black man? Elijah Muhammad can't have the final word. It can't be the message to the black man in America. That can't be the word. I got to hear a word from Jesus. And so I spent over three years studying this stuff. And I said, I got it now. I'm done. But what has happened now, you got a lot of brothers now 
who don't know this. And it grieves me because I see what's going on and we got to know, trust me, Hebrew Israelites are in the city of Birmingham. They're here. And they're coming hard after our brothers. The nation of Islam has resurged. And you got the internet and YouTube now and people are looking at this stuff and you hear all the time, is Christianity the white man's religion? And you got young people who going off to universities now whose minds are being swayed away from Jesus because people are not addressing this core issue of identity. Who are we? How does Christianity fit into this? And so when you hear the lie that Christianity is about slavery and about oppression, how do you challenge that narrative? Because if we don't challenge it, we're going to lose a whole generation. So if you think about going out to evangelize, you got to be equipped. You got to be able to, you got to know this. You got to know what God has done in Africa. So brothers can have a sense of identity. Amen. 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 I'm done. This is the end of our black history. Uh, This is the last Sunday, right, Pastor Mike? We ain't got no more days, right? We ain't got no more days. I can't, I can't preach no more this month. So uh, I'm done. So I'm going to ask Pastor Mike if he come close us out on this Black History Month. It's been a great month. Amen. And uh, thank the Lord. All right. Y'all stand up. Y'all stand up. Hallelujah. We all family. I can see that. Thank you for all the visitors that are here. Appreciate y'all being here. It's always good to see. Uh, y'all do come back now. You're here. Y'all just grab hands with one another. Well, he got, he, 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 he's moving. We're going to sing just a little bit.